Good morning to each of you. This is the third Sunday of Advent. You notice we have three candles now lit. And um, as we continue to anticipate and wait on our celebration of the coming of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, once again this morning I want to take us to the Christmas story and, and yet Christ has not come yet in our story. Uh, we'll begin to celebrate that this evening. Open your Bible this morning to Matthew, one of the two Gospels that records information about Jesus' birth. We were in Luke 2. Luke is the other Gospel writer that does. Um, two Sundays ago, and we talked about Simeon, and last Sunday we were in, um, once again, we talked about Zacharias. Uh, in Matthew, in Luke, but now I take you to Matthew. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1, follow as I read. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Abinadab, and Aminadab begat Nasan, and Nasan begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias, and Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zorobabel, and Zorobabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad, and Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And I know you're thinking, okay Dave, what can you preach from that text? <clears throat> One of the questions that we have when we start studying the Bible, probably every reader of the Bible has come up with this question at some time or other, is why do we have four Gospels? If the Gospels are about the same man, and indeed they are, Jesus the Christ, why do we have four Gospels, and why do they differ in detail and structure and chronology? If they're all talking about the same story, why do they tell it so differently? Well, there might be various answers to that, but one of the things we need to understand is that, first of all, none of the Gospels were written 
to give us an exhaustive detail of the life of Christ. In fact, John writes in his gospel in chapter 20, he said there are many other things that could be written about the life of Jesus that were not written. But these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that is the purpose of each of the Gospels, is that we, people would, the readers would believe that He is the Son of God. Not to give an exhaustive biography of Him. Secondly, I think we have to understand that each Gospel writer had a different agenda in writing his Gospel. And that agenda was shaped by the audience that he was writing to. How they told the story of Jesus depended on the audience that they were reaching. And, and we should understand that. If, if you were going to tell someone about last Friday in your life, what you said would be different if you were talking to your spouse or if you were talking to your child or if you were talking to your pastor. You probably would include different things about what Friday was like. Who you are speaking to will shape how you tell your story. And so when we look at the record of the birth of Christ, that narrows us down to two Gospels. You see, John begins his Gospel with a theological statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. He begins with a theological statement. Mark begins his gospel with Jesus full grown. But Matthew and Luke are the two that tell of the birth of Christ. Luke, very obviously, is writing to a non-Jewish audience. And one of the reasons we know that is that he takes effort in his gospel to explain various Jewish customs. For instance, he talks about the Feast of the Tabernacles. He talks about the activities in the synagogue. He talks about the activities in the temple. Things that a Jewish audience would not have needed to have explained to them. But the Gentiles did. Matthew, however, is very clearly writing to a Jewish audience. His agenda is to authenticate Jesus' Messiahship so that they will receive Him as their Messiah. To show that Jesus is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that was promised in their history. And, and there are various things when you look at the Gospel of Matthew um, that I want to share before I get in really to the message that, that, that helps us understand what he was doing. First of all, Matthew likens Jesus to Moses. Moses was revered and honored in all of Jewish history as the greatest prophet. The one who brought the law to the people. The one who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. In the same way that Matthew is portraying Jesus as the one who leads the Jews out of their sins. In the second way, the Gospel of Matthew is, is divided into five sections. Now, the number five means a lot to Jewish people. The number five immediately makes them think of the Pentateuch, the five books 
of the Old Testament. They were written by Moses. And in fact, the book of Psalms is divided into five sections as well. So Matthew divides, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it bracely breaks out into surrounding five different specific times of Jesus' teaching. One was the Sermon on the Mount. One was the discourse when he sent his disciples out for missionary work. Another was the extended parable passage. Another was his teaching about the church. And the final was his teaching of the end times. Similar to the way that, as I said, the, gospel, the, the book of Psalms is divided into five. You see, the Jewish mind associated numbers in a very specific way. So, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, mirrors the writing of Moses. And so, Matthew also begins his gospel differently, even from Luke. Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth, but he actually begins with the birth of John the Baptist. But notice how Matthew begins his gospel. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy. And I just read that. Now, who cares about begats and begottens? Now, genealogies are probably the, the, the biggest ho hum when you're reading the gospel. In fact, I don't know how old you may have been when you first decided you were going to read through the New Testament. I'm going to read through the New Testament, Abby. So I opened the Bible to Matthew, and I first I looked at chapter 1. Many of us just jumped down to verse 18. And the birth of Jesus was on this wise. I mean, who cares about all these names? But genealogy is so critical for the Jewish mind. Because in the Jewish heritage, you don't decide who you're going to be just because of what you want to be. Who you're going to be and what you're going to do has to be anchored in your background, in your genealogy. Let me give you an example. If you were to be a priest, you could only be a priest if you could trace your genealogy back to the tribe of Levi. You could only be in the kingly line if you could trace your lineage back to David. And so Matthew very clearly understands that if the Jews are going to accept Jesus as the Messiah, it must first of all in their understanding, he must qualify. Not just that he can demonstrate miraculous signs, but he has to qualify. He has to have the right family. He has to have the right kinfolk. He has to have the right history. And it's interesting that when we look through these characters that Jesus, that Matthew lists, the genealogy, we actually see more than just telling us who Jesus came from. We actually see who God his Father is. Well, there are another thing we look at these genealogies. The number seven is always important in Jewish genealogy. They often listed their, their genealogy in groups of seven. And we find here three groups of 14. Well, 14 is a multiple of seven. So we find that still mirrored out. But what's interesting is if you go to the Old Testament and if you trace the other genealogies, Matthew requires 42. But there actually were 50. 
between Abraham and Christ. So it's obvious that Matthew chose to leave some people out. Well, when the Jews listed their genealogies, it was not so important that that they were exhaustive, that everyone was included, but what was important was that it was authentic, that you could trace the path. But whether everyone was listed was not that important. It'd be somewhat similar to you listing your, if what family you're in, you wouldn't necessarily have to list all the siblings, but you're in that family. That was important, that you're in that family. So we find that Matthew led some people out. And if you go back and look who those were, and I won't take time, I, I had the names of them, they were kings that really were ungodly kings. They really didn't contribute anything positive to the plan of God. But what is even more important this morning, I find fascinating, is not who Matthew left out, but who he put in. Because when you trace your lineage, your genealogy as a Jew, you never identify yourself by your mother. It's always by your father. And Matthew includes five women in this genealogy. Now, I have nothing against women. I think you know that. But this is significant for that day and time. That he leaves out seven or eight men and includes five women. And then what's even more fascinating is what women he includes. Because these women are not stellar women. Now the genealogy starts out on a high note. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob, strong Jewish names, men of faith. But when we get to the women, the ones he chooses to mention are Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, well, the wife of Uriah. Notice she's still listed a thousand years later, Matthew still records her as not Bathsheba, the wife of David, but the wife of Uriah and Mary. You see, it's very clearly God is not sexist and God is not racist. You can't tell the story of the working of God without including women. You, you, you can't. You're, you're missing out if you try to do that. You, you can't tell the story of Elijah without talking about the widow of Zarephath. You can't tell the story of Lazarus without talking about Mary and Martha. You can't tell the story of Paul's ministry without mentioning Phoebe and Lois and Eunice and Priscilla. You can't tell the story of, of, of the children of Israel and their conquest without mentioning Deborah. You, you can't do that. You have to include them. They are part of that story. But it's interesting that 
as he tells that story, we see that God is not limited by those who are well-known, who have an academic record or a standing in society. That God's plan and program down through the ages to bring about his son was not limited or hampered by people who had faults. And so I think it's very powerful to see what Matthew does in this. You have Rahab, well, Tamar, who's, let me just refresh your memory if you don't know who Tamar was. Tamar was married to Judah. Tamar was twice widowed by sons of Judah. And Tamar's only hope for future stability and economic provision for her was that she would have a son, an offspring, so Jewish law provided that she should be given to Judah's younger son. And Judah reneged on that. And so Tamar, like we often see in Scripture and sometimes we are guilty of, took things in her own hands and pretended to be a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law and became pregnant by him. And, and that's the story of Tamar. Rahab, we know in the, in the city of Jericho, was, was a well-known prostitute. And yet she spared the lives of the spies, and so her household was spared. Um, Bathsheba, we know, an adulteress, the affair she had with David. You know... It's so interesting to see these individuals that we certainly, if we were telling the story, we would have disqualified them, right? We wouldn't have put them in the story. We would have left them out. And then, of course, Ruth, a teenager, is pregnant before marriage. Why does God use flawed stories? We, we can ask that question. Of all the people, why does God use flawed people? I've come to, to an answer to that this week. You know why God uses flawed people even today? Why God has always used flawed people? Because that's all he's got to choose from. We are all flawed people. Noah was a drunkard. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a trickster. Rahab was a prostitute. Paul was a persecutor of believers. But God used them. And so the first point I want to make for all of us this morning as we approach Christmas, as you think to the next year, is God can use anyone. And first of all, we need to be careful how we discredit other people. We see someone who has made such a mess of their life, has made terrible choices, has such a reputation, and it's so easy for us to want to turn off the nozzle on the hose of God's grace. Listen, God can use anyone. God's grace and His power can use anyone. 
And the second thing of that part is we need to be careful that we never allow Satan to convince us that because of my past, God couldn't use me. God, God, God couldn't use me. See, if you knew everything about me that I know about me, you would know that God couldn't use me. And that's part of the source of despair of people today. They say, if I could go back and live my life over, maybe I would have hope, but you don't know what all I have done. Listen, I'm here to say this morning, I don't care what you have done, how long you have done it, what you have said, how long you have said it, God can use you. God wants to use you. So that's the first truth I really want us to grasp this morning as we approach Christmas and share with other people. It doesn't matter what your resume looks like. If Jesus is on your resume, your past does not need to define you. And God can use anyone. And I think Matthew very clearly in sharing these stories, including these women in this genealogy, we see that God can use them. Listen, the blood of two Gentile women flowed through Jesus' mouth. God's grace and his power is great enough to use anyone. Well, the second thing I think we find in this genealogy is that God can work through any situation. No matter how ugly no matter how messed up, no matter how jacked up, no matter how broken, God can work through that. You look back through this genealogy, and I don't have time this morning to go back in some of those stories, but I'll just mention, for instance, David, David and Bathsheba, how messed up that was, conspiracy to murder. God is omnipotent. God is powerful enough to work through any situation to bring about his glory. He, anyone can get good out of good, but only an omnipotent God can take a situation that is so broken, so warped, so messed up, and still bring it out to his glory. I mean, you think of those five, think of these situations we find in this this genealogy. We've got sexual scandal. We've got deliberate disobedience of the children of Israel. We've got conspiracy to commit murder. We've got the destruction of Jerusalem. We've got 70 years of exile. And at the end of all of that, Jesus comes. Let me say it again. We've got sexual scandal. We've got deliberate disobedience. We've got conspiracy to commit murder. We've got destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. We've got 70 years of exile. And at the end of all that mess, we find Jesus. Wait a minute. Third time's the charm. We've got sexual scandal. We got deliberate disobedience. 
We got conspiracy to commit murder. We got destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. We got the children of Israel in exile for 70 years. And at the end of that, we have Jesus. God can work through any situation. Well, the birth of Jesus Christ comes after all of that. It comes in verse 18, after 17 verses of this genealogy. You see, God can work through every situation in our life. Not just the holy moments in our lives, but the unholy moments in our lives. And so I say again this morning, no matter what a person has done, no matter what they have become involved in, no matter how long they were involved in it, God can work through that. So we have to be careful we don't disqualify other situations, nor our situation. Well, the third point, and we need to get to Sunday school, God can redeem any life. God moves in ways to add value to that which others had no value for. You see, the genealogy starts off pretty good, doesn't it? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it very quickly goes south. Very quickly goes more left than right. One name turns that whole story around. When we get to the end, of these 17 verses of genealogy, of more failure than success, of more unholiness than holiness, there's one name that turns it all around, and that's the name of Jesus. That name of Jesus overrides Tamar's mistakes. That name of Jesus overrides Rahab. That name of Jesus overrides, we have a Moabitus Ruth. That name overrides the wife of Uriah, and what she did. There's no other name that can do that but Jesus. And so this morning, as we approach Christmas, we need to be confident and understand that while we read a genealogy like this, it can be almost like looking in a mirror because if I could call any of you to a witness stand this morning and ask you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you would have to admit to me that there have been holy moments in your life and there have been unholy moments. There have been times when you have said the right thing and there have been times when you said the wrong thing. There were in times when, when, when you have demonstrated right living. And there have been times when you haven't demonstrated right living. But at the end of that reflection, of that testimony, what I would ask you is, has Jesus entered your resume? Because no matter what, detail you would share with us from your life. If Jesus has encountered you 
and you've encountered him and you've experienced his forgiveness, he redeems your story. And you no longer are who you were forever. And notice, after Jesus, there's no name mentioned. The next time we have in Scripture talking about names being written is in the Lamb's book of life where the redeemed are listed. That's where your name is written when you encounter Jesus, the Messiah who has come. Well, God can use anyone, even you. And God can change any situation, even your situation, or the situation of someone that we encounter this holiday season. And God can redeem every life, every situation. Matthew wanted his audience to understand who this Jesus was. Not just that he demonstrated miracles, but who he was and how he fit in God's plan. Matthew wanted them to understand that. You see, it's interesting that later, even Jesus' opponents, none of them, none of them questioned that he was from the line of David. Being from the line of Abraham made him a Jew. Being from the line of David made him qualify to be the Messiah. And that was so important for the Jewish people. Gentiles, it meant nothing. But for the Jewish audience, that was so critical. Because who your past genealogy defined what you could be in the future. And Matthew tells that wonderful story. And in his telling, in his reconstruction of genealogy, he really tells or reveals who God is. That God would take those people who are people like us. People who were flawed. People who made some terrible decisions. And yet, in those decisions and the consequences of those, God still is omnipotent. He still can work his plan. He still can work things out for his glory. And that's why Paul says that God can work all things together for our good. He can work even through our weaknesses and our failures and our past for his glory. Let's rejoice in the coming of our Savior who was the exclamation point on the end of that genealogy that is a reflection, if we are honest, of our own lives. But we have not always been holy people. We've not always had the right thoughts. We've not always said the right words. We've not always had the right relationships. We've not always done the right things. And yet, Jesus came for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning in the coming of your Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. 
Thank you, Father, that he demonstrated in his coming who you are and your mercy and your judgment and your faithfulness in the lives of the nation of Israel, but also in our lives. May we be ones who boldly proclaim the hope of the gospel during this season. In Christ's name we pray.